This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. What's interesting about interviewing you is that you and I have nothing in common. (laughs) I'm from the East Coast. You're from the West Coast. You're a seven-foot-tall basketball player. Everybody wants to be good at something, right? So it's like in sports. Everybody wants to be a good shooter or a great player. Well, there's thousands of those people who want to do that. So what's going to separate them is time. It's the time you're willing to put in and the sacrifices you're willing to make to be that player. And for me, the time it took to play baseball, the time it took to play basketball, I wanted to do that because, you know, I wanted to be good, but I liked it. When you were drafted, they called you Moses. Obviously, you were working really hard from a young age. What made you want to be good at basketball? From my dad, you learn how to work really hard. Um, And that was more the norm. Why? What made you different? Support for today's show comes from Lulu. Lulu is a free self-publishing platform that provides low-cost, high-quality, print-on-demand services that make it easy for you to tell your story. Plus, Lulu's print network makes your book available within days and deliverable around the world. And with over 1 million books published, Lulu's got the largest indie bookstore in the world. So, share your knowledge. Just go to Lulu, L-U-L-U dot com and use the offer code JAMES20 for 20% off your purchase of any print book on the site or write your own and get 20% off your first proof copy. So I know zero about basketball and I have basketball superstar (laughs) Bill Cartwright with me. Bill, uh, welcome to the show. Ah, it's great to be here. Um, uh, I've, I've heard um, nothing but extraordinary things about you, so there's no pressure on you at all. You know, I've never gone to a basketball game, and oh. I've played basketball a little bit, and my tiny girlfriend crushed me at one-on-one basketball, and that's my experience with basketball. But I do want to talk about some of, just just to, uh, by way of introduction, I mean, you were with the Chicago Bulls during their... You, you were like the team with the Chicago Bulls, like the most, maybe the most famous team of any sports team of any sport in history. Like you you won, I guess, three championships with them. Um, yeah. There's Michael Jordan, there's Phil Jackson was the coach, just all these great players. You, of course, were, were one of the all-star players of the team. You were the... The you're seven foot one, so you're the you were the center. Um, why do they have like the tallest guy on the team as the center? <laughs> this is how this is how naive I am about basketball. Well, because the center is exactly what it is. He's the center of everything. Everything kind of evolves around him, offensively and defensively. So you have two guards, right next Port- to the center. No, no, no. They're okay. the back. Now, hang on now. You got, you, got, you got a point guard, got a shooting guard. So when you watch the next, you know what's going on. You say, that's a point guard. That's a point guard, shooting guard. The small forward is usually the shooting forward. And the big forward, which is the four-man, is uh, usually the, the rebounder. And the center is usually the tallest person. But what's going to confuse you now is because the, because the NBA has kind of evolved. 
is that they're playing what's known as small ball. So they're really, at times, they could have smaller people on the floor. So the positions are kind of interchangeable. What does it mean, small ball? I don't understand. Small ball, traditionally, let's say uh, uh, point guard is one, shooting guard's two, small forward's three, big forward's four, and the center is five. Well, each of those is pretty much uh, by height. So the point guard was always the smallest guy on the floor. And then two, three, four, five. Why, why would he be the smallest guy? That's just traditionally because that's the ball handler. Uh, traditionally in the old he, days. He's more nimble getting he, around. He was your best ball handler. Now your best ball handler could be your biggest guy. Why is that? That's just the evolution of our league. Because training's different and... Well, it's just talent. The guys coming into the league... Uh, uh, you know, it started out with guys like Oscar Robinson who were bigger. So now you got a bigger point guard. And then moving forward, you got guys like Magic Johnson, who's almost as tall as I am. Now you got a 6'9 point guard coming at you. We had a guy on our team, Tony Kukoc, who's as tall as I am, set a foot, who could play all five positions. So these positions now are really subject to not your height, but by your talent. And uh, the games open up a lot more to where it's more of an outside game instead of an inside game. So it's changed. So it's a little bit confusing if you don't really have that strong foundation. So, and that's really what I'm I'm interested in. Like I said, I I don't really know a lot about basketball, but what I am really interested in is kind of the nuances of peak performance. So you've been an athlete at the highest level winning championships and there's it doesn't you know a lot of people could say well of course look at you you know you're seven foot one <laughs> and probably people just do you get do you, do you I'll, I'll get into my thing in a second but do you get annoyed like if people just look at you and say oh you must be a basketball player <laughs> well people look at you and this this is the amusing thing at least i find it amusing a lot of guys who are taller don't but uh not only do they notice you're tall and they and they tell you you're tall. In case you don't know, they're gonna tell you, "Hey, look, I'm gonna tell you something. You're pretty tall." Uh, then they'll tell you about a friend who's that they know or relative who's equally as tall. They'll tell you that it's difficult for them to, you know, buy shoes, clothes, pants, and they may ask you where you buy yours as well. So not only do they know you're tall, which you of course don't know. They will tell you about their problems and relatives. So that's a really Why do they tell you about your, their problems and relatives? Because <laughs> Maybe because in society, just evolutionary, we view tall people as somehow this <laughs> alpha, so you must know everything. I'm going to ask you about my relationships <laughs> by the end of this podcast. <laughs> I don't know, but it is, it, I'm telling you, it's pretty standard that uh, once they're able to establish with you that you're tall, that you don't know, then they're able to bond with you to share that information that they know somebody who's equally as tall and all of their problems. Well, well, what's interesting about interviewing you is that, I mean, I mean, this is not totally true and we'll get to, to the nuances of this as well, but you and I have nothing in common. <laughs> like we're, I'm from the East Coast, you're from the West Coast, 
You're a seven foot tall basketball player. Then you, and I just want to explain, then you were a coach. Now you work with the University of San Francisco. You do all sorts of things. Again, I want to talk about the nuances of, of peak performance and, and how you've achieved it. You play guitar. I don't. Uh, and you have some interesting quotes about that that I want to get to because I think it's relevant to how anyone gets peak performance and how you think about it. But I did find one thing that we both have in common is that you play chess and I play chess as well. Ah, I used to play chess. I almost brought a chess board to this podcast. (laughs) Well, you know what was interesting about, I loved hobbies when I was uh, playing. And uh, one of the first hobbies I had was Chloe uh, collecting. And uh, I love 50s memorabilia. I was born in 1957. So... I did that for a while, and he, and then I started playing chess. Now, the the problem with chess, what I discovered, uh, I actually started playing a little bit in college and kind of feeling with it. I bought one of those electronic chess boards, and I found it to be really addictive. It's very addictive. And uh, it was so addictive, one night I was playing against the board, and I lost like three hours, and I mean lost. So I played chess, and it was like, boom, I looked up, and it was like 1 o'clock, and I yeah. thought, there's something really wrong with this I, board. I've lost at least four years of my life to <laughs> being addicted to chess, maybe more. But, um, you know, and the other thing that we don't have in common is, you know, and there's not much about your childhood uh, online, really, but uh, you grew up like uh, your parents were, uh, you were in a farming community or you were there, I don't know, they were, you grew yeah. up on a farm? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm from uh, really an area just south of Sacramento. So I went to Elk Grove High School. So that tells you right there, it's in the country. Because so, the word grove is a, <laughs> like this is how urban I am. Like a grove is a tree or something or a bush <laughs> grove is like uh, uh fields and uh i see i didn't know valleys <laughs> uh, uh yeah the grove but uh um but that kind of you know activates your mind that yeah it's these guys are in the country but my dad was a farm laborer playing harvest irrigate grew up i had six sisters no brothers uh i'm right in the middle so i was Equally tortured, both sides. <laughs> obviously, every school in the country has a basketball court. How did you, and obviously, again, you were probably pushed into the court because you're like, oh, he's the tallest kid. Let's let's put him on the court. But, you know, being tall and then having talent and then having skill are three different things. And how did you start to realize, okay, it, 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 did it start off with like, oh, this is something I could do good at, so I'm going to try to get better at it? Or did you feel you had some natural talent? Or like, what happened first? I think that's normal for kids that, look, I was a sports kid, baseball, basketball, football. I love sports. So uh, if I was able, I'd, I'd hit a golf ball, tennis ball, whatever. So it didn't matter. But I was really, when I was a kid, I was more of a baseball player. I loved it. Uh, so but I imagine seven foot one, or you, I don't know when you had your well, spurt. You know, <laughs> it wasn't always seven foot one. But when I was in the sixth grade, I was six foot tall, so I was taller. So how are you? How like the? How are you going to hit the ball? Like you're you're out of the the umpire's got to adjust his whole the, the batter's box. Well, you the just, strikeout box. I don't even know what it's called. I don't know any sport. <laughs> well, 
basically, you know, I was really well rehearsed. So that was my real advantage to everything is that it doesn't matter what sport I did. I just played it more than everybody else. So I was a good baseball player as a kid, basically because I played more. What does that mean, played more? Because, uh, like, with basketball, you could sort of practice by, even though it's a team sport, you could practice by yourself. You could just shoot, shoot, shoot. But baseball, you can't really practice by yourself. Sure you can. All you need is one other guy. So we used to play, and I know you didn't do this, but what you would do is draw a plate on the wall and we'd play tennis baseball. So, uh, you know, you'd pitch to each other. Um, you'd set different a home, like a, um, a ground ball past like a tree in the outfield is like a base head. If it goes by halfway, it's a double. At the top of the tree, it's a triple. And if it's over the tree, it's a home run. And did you, did you play every day? Every day. Because I, I, I want to I get to a quote you said about guitar because you like guitar and, um, you know, you said that uh, you, you could have been, you know, you could have been more into it, but here's the interesting quote and it relates to what you just said. Uh, you'd have to practice for two hours a day at least and I don't have time to do that. And, and you know, it seems consistency doesn't matter that you're seven foot one. Okay, no matter what, you're tall, <laughs> but it's still that two hours a day to, is is like a code to get better at something. You doing two hours a day means all the other seven foot one people, and of course billions of other people who don't do two hours a day are not going to be as good at you at basketball, for instance. Well, the truth is, if I want to play that guitar well, I should be playing it twice that much because there's plenty of people that practice two hours a day. So, so time my, time is really the differentiator. Well, just look, everybody wants to be good at something, right? So it's like in sports. Everybody wants to be a good hitter. Everybody wants to be a good shooter or a great player. Well, there's thousands of those people who want to do that. So what's going to separate them is time. It's the time you're willing to put in and the sacrifices you're willing to make to be to be that player. And... And for me, the the time it took to play baseball, the time it took to play basketball, I wanted to do that because you know I wanted to be good, but I liked it. Why did you want to be good at it? What 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 was your when you were young and a teenager, and and you were you were already good in high school. You were you were uh, all everything in college. I don't even know what all the titles are, but you were <laughs> you, they called when you were drafted. You were they called you Moses, you know, because you were gonna save something by coming into basket professional basketball so so obviously you were you were working really hard from a young age like like what made you want to be good at basketball you know and and, and by the way i ask it you know and there could be really superficial answers like maybe you wanted girls to like you or maybe you wanted money or or maybe you just love the sport or it could be all three oh that's what you learn when you're a kid so we learn great fundamental skills footwork um from my dad, you learn how to work really hard. Um, and that was more the norm. So, um, you know, once once I got to high school, we had a really uh, good high school coach. He's very demanding. So how, how hard you worked on the floor and the time you put in. A lot of guys go and, they, and they're there, but they don't work very hard. Why? So, uh, because that's their norm. So, well, like, they, what made you different? 
really the people around me. My dad, Mike, a uh, high school coach, uh, your effort uh, had to be extraordinarily high. So that's how we learn how to practice and learn how to work at consequently. Um, you know, you could, uh, you could really improve. There's a great story with my high school coach who actually, um, I had a guy who was a year older than me, uh, this guy, Terry Sulfur, who I'm still really great friends with. When he was a uh, freshman, um, he played on the freshman team. He was uh, probably played about six minutes during that entire season, and they probably played 33 games. So that's not a lot of minutes, just so you know. So, <laughs> Wait, six minutes over 33 games? Yes. How do you only play like 12 seconds a game? <laughs> because he was lousy, and the coach didn't work with him. Uh, and they had a really good team. I think out of 33 games, they won like 31 of them. So they had good players on that team. So that freshman class was going to move on. So our high school coach saw that freshman class, and he looked at all the players on there, and he brought one guy up to the varsity, my buddy Terry, who was 6'9", and didn't up and played about six minutes for the year. By that next summer or the start of that next season, he was a starter on the varsity. So that came from hard work. That came from our coach's vision, but that came from hard work throughout the summer and the time that he put in. And how much how much time do you think he put in that summer? I would say six days a week, um, probably four hours a day minimum, four or five hours a day. And not basketball. only that, he had a coach too. He had a coach that drove him and gave him a game plan of how you were going to get better. This is how you're going to get better. You're going to reach your potential. And luckily, both sides were cooperative enough, one, to be able to push, the other one to accept the pushing. Because there's this notion called uh, deliberate practice about how to get better in as quickly as, as quick a time as possible or how to how to reach your potential. And one is having a coach who could see your strengths and weaknesses and knows how to help you make stronger your strengths and overcome your weaknesses. And then the second thing is repetition and time put in. So for instance, with repetition, it's like Bruce Lee says that saying, um, I don't fear the man who has who knows 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who practice one kick 10,000 times. So there, there's this notion of, you know, really working hard at that one particular strength or weakness to overcome it. Uh, and I wonder if that's what the coach did for him. Well, exactly. But there's a lot of things at play with the coach. It is that um, clearly you have to, to be able to push this kid, you have to have some kind of relationship with them that, because look, you got to trust somebody to, Put you through a put you through um, a series of making you stronger, putting the time in the gym to teach you moves because physically it's not a lot of fun, but somehow you've got to make that fun and then somehow you've got to you've got to have this kid trust you enough to be able to be pushed, and that's and that's a big thing. So how, how do you how do you develop like? And that happens in also in like business with like managers and I mean any time any time where you need to kind of build consensus among people or even one person, you have to be able to build a vision that they believe in. And so, how do you think a coach in sports that require uh, you know extreme um, 
you know, work and achievement. How do you think a coach, and you've been a coach, you've worked for the best coaches in the world. Uh, how do you think the best coaches build that motivation and that vision? Every coach is, is different. Mine is more personal. So I'm, I'm, if I'm, I'm going to know you, I'm going to know everything about you. I'm going to know your wife, girlfriend, uh, kids, cat, dog, where you went to school, uh, have a conversation with you. Um, how come? How, how come you need to know my girlfriend? It's really important that I be able to converse with you. And I want you to feel comfortable around me. And the most important thing is that I want you to know that I'm on your side. And that everything I'm going to do for you or I'm going to do with you is to make you the best player you, you're going to be. So with knowing that, knowing that I'm on your side, I can say pretty much anything to you. But if you don't know me and my intent, it's very difficult to push you because you don't know me well enough, but you're going to know me. Right, so I can mistrust well. your agenda, for instance. Like, why is he doing this? Or Why is he doing this? Why is he telling me this? Why is he today cursing at me? Because I'm telling you, the closer I get to you, I can tell you anything because you know me. You know me, I'm close to you. You know what? I just drove your girlfriend to the store. Uh, we just had dinner last night. You know me, you know me, you know what kind of person I am. You know I'm on your side. And so, so, and you've experienced all this on both sides, like from, from your, like let's say your high school coach, your college coach, certainly the, the Phil Jacksons of the world. Uh, uh, and you've, you've done this on the other side. You've been, you've been a coach, so... Uh, for you, when you were when you were kind of again growing up in skill, um, what were some key factors? So obviously, you put a lot of time in. How much time did you put into basketball every every day? Well, you know, at different levels, I knew that when I was in high school, I knew I felt that there was nobody that shot the ball more than me, not in this country, not unless you're out of your mind. So it really wasn't until I was in college that I met one of my teammates, went for Boynes. And I thought, wow, this guy, because we were outside <clears throat> the gym, we were playing ping pong. This guy was in the gym at midnight after the season was over shooting baskets. And I thought, wow, here's a guy finally that shoots more than I do. So it's, it's, it was all about the work. And so did you then, did that inspire you to shoot more than him? No, because I was already crazy. I'd shot enough. So I, I felt comfortable with my game and my understanding then, but... Like how many, like just st standing on the court, how many shots would you attempt per day? Well, it's not per day, it's per session. So hmm. it could be in the morning, you come in, you get three, 400 shots up. Uh, then we would lift weights, uh, maybe at 11. And then you go in and then now you're getting some more shots up, but now you're playing one-on-one. -on -one. And then in the afternoon, you're coming in again, you get some quick shots up. And now you're playing two on two, and then at night you'd play, maybe some uh, three on three. I didn't really like playing uh, five on five because you don't get as many shots up, but you work on your different skills. <laughs> so you could play three, four times a day, and get shots up. Now that's five days a week, and then Saturday you play for fun. So now you're playing for fun on Saturday, and then Sunday. Yeah, we we were little. We didn't go to church. Uh, probably play then too. So so 
What's always interesting to me with a difficult skill, and obviously any competitive sport is, is a difficult skill, that it's obviously not just one skill. There's maybe like a hundred micro skills and each one has to be mastered in order for you to get good at the umbrella skill, which is basketball. So you just mentioned, you know, obviously shooting and there's probably uh, many different varieties of shooting, right? There's kind of, I don't know, there's everything from like the three-point line to dunking it to when someone's covering you. There's probably... It's probably a whole vocabulary of shooting that you had to learn that vocabulary. And you do that by practicing three, 400 shots. Then there's kind of this one-on-one play when someone's on you and you have to do the uh, the ball work or whatever. Uh, and then there's probably the psychology of it. Like, what do you do when you're losing? Uh, so so uh, it seems people, I, I find people in general don't, they just think, oh, you're good at basketball. They don't realize there's, it, it reminds me and and, and maybe... Um, you can relate to this. Like in chess, you can't. No one's just good at chess. You have to be good at the opening of the game, the end game, the middle of the game. All these things are different skill sets. This there are hundred percent different skill sets, and you have to be really good at all of the different skill sets. And I think anything hard must have at least ten to twenty micro skills at least. Well, you've got to have a clear understanding of what your intent's going to be when you catch the ball. Now, as easy as it is for me to say that, <laughs> most guys, they don't have that skill. So that's a great example. Like, as soon as the ball is in your hand, yes. what are five factors that change what you do next? There is none. There's no factor that's going to change my thoughts. So it's really basic. It's, it's that. And, and, and I'll tell you, when I catch the ball, I'm going to attack in one direction every time. So, what does that mean? But that means that, and there's and there's other factors that go into that of fundamental skills. My footwork. So my footwork's correct. If I have good footwork, and I get into the position that I want to get into, certain areas of the floor are going to be open every time. So I'm going to attack there every time. What, and what, then now, what does that mean? So your foot, your feet are probably aimed towards an empty space, like the the path to the net. And okay, no, well, I'm sorry to be at drilling down so much. No, no, this is good because I should be able to explain this to you. Is that as you're on the basketball floor and you see the lane, you know what the lane is? The the path to the net that's clear. It's it's a lane. So if you see the if you see the lane where the the defensive guys are, you'll see some lines on the floor, and they actually line up on those lines when there's a free throw. So what'll happen is that those lines, your feet, if they're parallel to the those lines, if they're parallel to the lines or they're parallel to half court, your footwork will be good enough to be in a position to attack a certain area of the floor. And that area is the middle. So guys are pretty dogmatic. They're they're gonna use what they believe is successful every time. So that's why they're easily defended if you study. But because of the fact you can't have good footwork, you can't be stopped. And as as a teacher... What, 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 what it, I still don't understand. Are your, is your, are your feet aimed towards the lane? Like you're ready to go on the lane faster than someone where the feet's like aimed somewhere else? Or Well, your feet are aimed at the person who's passing you the ball. So... 
but you just want to make sure when you catch the ball, you, you catch it. And this is fun because I'm not sure you know what I mean. You've got to catch it in a jump stop. A jump stop. It'd be great if I could work with you on this because I think I'd find a lot of humor. Now I want to learn basketball, yeah. <laughs> you got to do a jump stop with two feet parallel to half court or or the uh, or the lane or the sideline, however you want to call it. So, uh, and then now, once you have good footwork, and this is my point, because your basic fundamental skills, a lot of guys don't have great footwork, so they don't have the option to be able to attack where they want to attack. But that's interesting to me too. So why don't some professional level players um, have good footwork. Like, don't they realize that that's, it seems to me, so So you're describing like a fundamental skill that I've never even heard of before that's related to it's okay. peak performance. No, oh. I, it's okay because I'm not a basketball player, but but it's related to peak performance at what you love to do. And you're telling me some other people who are, who would, who are close to peak performance, but not quite there, they didn't learn this fundamental skill. So this, again, it's it's how a, med, a meta skill, and in this case, we're calling it basketball, is divided up into these important micro skills. And one of them is footwork, a word that I've never heard before in this context. And why do some people not want to learn that or why do they refuse to learn it? I've had, I'm, I'm a product of great teachers of, bas- of sports. So whether it was football, baseball, basketball, and basketball, I've had great coaches. So my feeling is that those coaches are a dying breed we have more guys who have other thoughts in mind and they'll possess that knowledge. So that knowledge and that style of teaching of basic fundamental skills is a, is dying. And the, the coaches, a lot of them are dead. So if, okay, I'm obviously not, I'm, I'm about to say something really ridiculous, <laughs> but if I were a basketball coach, I would say, okay, here are the, 10 to 20 micro skills every player needs to learn no matter what position you're in. And then we'll start focusing on the skills for your specific position. And you need to just start learning. You know, I, I, you would need to learn all of these skills, you know, from beginning to end. So why don't coaches do that? Because uh, coaches um, teach what they know and they know what they teach, but that doesn't mean they know a lot. So, why would they get hired by the team? That is a whole other show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So now maybe that gets into the politics of well, the league, or like, how do you get audience and so on? It's 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 like look, you've got to be able to uh, teach at the style that you're comfortable in. So, uh, fortunately for me, when I came to the Chicago Bulls, I had teachers like Johnny Bach who passed. Tex Winter, Tex Winter. These are these are legendary coaches. Uh, Tex Winter, who coached at Northwestern and he coached in the NBA for for many years, but he was a great basic fundamental coach. So I learned a lot of basketball from him, and it just reaffirmed what I already really knew. But the, but my point to that is that all those fundamentals that we do every day, that we work on every day, a lot of people take for granted to be able to basic skills of dribbling, passing, shooting. Uh, A lot of coaches will just pass that up 
and to just practice our offense. So those basic skills that you teach a junior high school kid, high school kid, college kid, they don't teach. Because maybe they figure the kid learned, if he's already at the pros, he probably learned it in college or high school. That he, if that person is, uh, for whatever they're teaching, maybe there's not enough time for it. Maybe they're, uh, will say, okay, he can't do it and just go off and do something else. But to me, those skills are ex- extraordinarily important. That is what you practice every day, your basic fundamental skills. So, a lot of coaches don't believe that, so that's on them. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're busy and your time is valuable. So you need to get things done quickly, efficiently, and at the best price. Choose Lulu. Create product guides, manuals, and brand books on Lulu's easy-to-use platform. Lulu's low-cost, high-quality print-on-demand services allow you to buy the quantities you need when you need them. Plus, Lulu's print network makes your book available within days and deliverable around the world. And you can feel good about it because Lulu is a certified B Corporation and offers the largest revenue splits in the industry. So share your knowledge, become an authority in your field, publish with Lulu. Let your book be your new business card and let Lulu be your new business partner. So tell your story. Just go to Lulu, that's L-U-L-U dot com and use the offer code JAMES20 for 20% off your purchase of any print book on the site or write your own and get 20% off your first proof copy. That's lulu.com, offer code JAMES20. I think there's other aspects of your life and not just your career that helped you uh, practice all these skills and I'll, I'll get into that in a second. But let's say you're listening to this and you're feeling frustration. Oh, it was great. This guy got to do what he loves, but you know, he had every opportunity to do it. And I have, uh, you know, mortgage and responsibilities and this job. And I would love to do X, Y, Z play guitar in the local place. What would be given your experience of getting at the best in the world at one thing, what would be your, how would you break it down to get great at an entirely different thing? Even if you don't know what that field is, you start to get into it with guitar when you when you explain it about guitar. Well, I, I think you have to know. For one thing, you have to know a lot about that area, that field. So, you know, like when I wanted to play the guitar, uh, which was interesting because really I wanted to play the piano, which I was thinking now from this guitar it wears me out. Maybe I should have played the piano. Well, guitar, your hands are going to have problems with all the strings. Piano, you can reach like seven octaves with those hands. <laughs> well, seemingly, there's nothing natural about contorting your fingers to uh, be able to play, you know, uh, just a basic E or G, and let alone an F chord on a guitar. So there's no, there's nothing natural about that. So it's repetition, but. It's for me. It's it's just it's got to be fun. It's got to be something you want to do. It's got to be uh, something that you don't feel guilty about it. That okay, I practiced for an hour yesterday, but I only practiced for five minutes. So it's got to be it's got to be fun for you. So fun for you. Do you think that's related to talent? So you think that people who have fun 
like, I always feel talent, and maybe you disagree, but I always feel talent is the ignition, and then driving is the is the skill. So you have to be able to turn on the ignition. And you think people in general have more fun at the things that they have basic talent at? I think that you have talent. You just have to enjoy it. I mean, everybody. Now, when I was playing, I don't know if you've noticed, but I got, I've had a few throat surgeries. So uh, I was hit in the throat and uh, fractured my uh, larynx, had my voice my, um, paralyzed. Um, so, um, but I've overcome that and I can speak now at a decent volume, not real loud. But uh, I still want to sing. Everybody loves to sing, right? Yeah. But I'm never going to be. Um, great, a great singer, but I could be the best singer I could be. And I have fun with it. So it's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to be Jimi Hendrix. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be Aaron Neville. But I can be good enough to sing in a room. So, okay, let's break that down. So first thing you said was, obviously that would be fun for you. But then they said, you know, learn everything about that field. So for singing, what would you... What, what do you mean by learn everything about that field? Everything that you would want to. Like, I like um, I like jazz. I like blues. So I know what I, I like a little rock and roll. So I know kind of what I kind of want to play, right? So at least to start. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to go from there. So um, I think in just learning that that's what I want to do. So I can, So now what do I need to be able to do that? And what singing is kind of the same thing. Every, you know, I, I know what I would want to kind of sing. <clears throat> now one of my, what can I do? So, uh, and why, and, and, and also this is a good lesson from sports is that I'm, I'm not bounded by, by fear. Uh, I know that people have fear when they play sports. I never had any fear. I was never Why? fearful of hitting because I was. Tall? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep bringing it up. You must get sick of that. Well, it's it's I, I you know fear plays a lot in sports to where guys are afraid to fail. Um, I have no because they, they of attach fear. their their self worth to how they do on the arena. Well, I I view it the other way. I I know that I don't care who the opponent is or when I was growing up, how much older than they are to me, I could beat them if I'm smart. So um, I was thinking more of how I can win. So uh, now think about this: Little Elk Grove High School that I went to school with, the school at my junior year, uh, we're thirty and zero, didn't lose a game all year. So that kind of dismissed the notion that, in my mind, that you can't win them all, because you certainly can. Uh, so that team that year, we lost uh, everybody on that team except for me. It's gone, graduated. So we brought up the JV team, and that year we did lose five games but we won the Northern California Championship. So it's it's the idea that of what you're capable of, uh, if you believe it, you got a chance. So again, with the singing though, you're interested in blues and whatever, 
would you learn everything about the blues? Would you study the history of it? Like, well, how would you kind of dive a little deeper if you wanted to learn singing? Well, I'm sure to... nobody's asked you, uh, you uh, <laughs> the best basketball player in history, <laughs> how you would learn how to sing uh, after all these throat surgeries. <laughs> well, I, I just think you have to, um, it's like with music, you know, everybody knows what you uh, like you're listening to a song, if you hear like a lick, you you know if you like it or not. So if I'm wanting to sing, I'm kind of like, hmm, I like the way you sung that song. Maybe I could do that. So you're kind of emulating others. But I have an understanding of that. It's like even with sports, even though somebody's making a move that you're like, oh, wow, I'm going to use that move. So now that move is your move. So... Um, so, so, I, so, in I some sense, you have coaches, but also you have, in a some, in a weird way, of virtual mentors, like people who have mastered some move that you would like to master, and you, you, you study it enough, you can mimic it. You can absolutely mimic it, and, um, and, you know, if you think it could work for you, certainly. So, and it's interesting because you always know when it happens. Like, I know you weren't a sports guy growing up, so maybe you didn't have that experience of, of guarding somebody, and they attack you, or they make a great move, they go by you, you're like, wow, I'm gonna use that. And and for me, it's really it was really cool. So it's like, wow. So, so you'd build up this library of moves almost in your head. Absolutely. And in and your they're, body. And they're like automatic. So then now you gotta add it to your repertoire of what you practice. So whether you're at the top, whether you're at the wing, whether you're on the post, um, you you have a real sense of how you want to attack and how you want to score. And to me, that guitar is kind of the same thing because you're kind of, uh, I don't know if you play that at all, so it's kind of like if you're playing a 12-bar blue, 12-bar blues, and then there's, you know, then now you want to throw something in there then you kind of just, oh, okay, I kind of heard that the other day. That's really cool. So I just wish I was as fast as those guys to be able to do that. But then an instructor or a coach could help you improve speed and help you improve management of your fingers and efficiency and so on. Well, he can help you uh, with the lick. You're going to help yourself by practicing that lick for the right. speed of it. And then with singing, a coach could help you with the breathing, uh, You know, things that are particular to singing. Well, I haven't quite gotten to the singing yet, but I'm. Uh, but that's one of my aim, and I think it would be really, really fun because it's it, it works well with both. So then now you're. Uh, I just think know, it would be a funny skit if you and I were both to go into a, a singing instructor and say we want to learn how to sing <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, there'd be people out there who would. Uh, Probably shake their head at me, but they probably do well with you. So yeah, we're really excited about me. James. We're <laughs> really excited to have you, Bill. Uh, you're gonna have to come back. We're gonna need more time with you. <laughs> but it does seem like a, a coach is important. Virtual mentor is important to build this kind of vocabulary of moves for each situation that you like. It seems like listing all the micro skills like, okay, we're going to shoot. We're going to learn how to shoot. We're going to learn how to do good footwork in basketball. What are some other micro skills that are, that you need to master or that you did master? Well, the, the, and, and the big thing are your, your teammates naturally that, 
Um, basketball's not, you know, you're not playing golf, you're not playing tennis, you're, you're working with a whole team of guys. So um, just to be able to play with them, have a clear understanding of what the team's intent is, both offensively and defensively, and then where you're going to fit in and make the best contribution. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think a lot of team like great basketball players get stopped because old, like cap their careers ultimately because they can't fit in with a team or or a particular team? Well, that's where your coaching comes in. Mm-hmm. That if you have a good coach, and it's and it's just like everything else you do in life. If you've got a good coach, you've got a good manager. That job you're doing for that team is really important, and we need for you to be successful at what you're doing for our team to succeed. Like, let's say you didn't get along with Michael Jordan when you were obviously an important, the two most important people. I'm not, I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> you, you, two, two critical people to the success of the Chicago Bulls winning all these championships. If, let's say you didn't get along, what would your coach do? What Phil do Jackson. Mean, well, there's, there's not getting along and there's not playing together. So it doesn't matter if we get along. What matters is that we play together and to mm-hmm. for for a common goal of winning. All right, good distinction. We don't we don't we don't have to like each other at all. We can hate each other, but we can play well on the court. So, uh, and that goes for all your teammates. It does it doesn't matter. The most important thing is the team because as our team wins, the more successful we are, the more value we have as players. And it, it was really interesting, and that goes from there's twelve to fifteen guys on a team. Our 15th guy, his value now raises, even though he doesn't play a minute, because of our team's success. Now that I'm thinking, I guess the reason I said, if you didn't like each other, I got back into your description of being a coach, where you said you would know the person's car, the person's girlfriend, the person's parents, this, that. It seems like if you didn't play well with another teammate, one strategy would be to act like a coach and say, okay, I'm going to really get to know this guy so he would trust me and trust my agenda that I want to, you know, work together on the team. And you would want him to do the other, the vice versa, uh, unfortunately, and you can't control that. Well, you know, most guys, and I'm saying 90% of the guys are pretty compliant to, you know, the team's goals and what they do. Uh, you know, there's always that dynamics of the teams where you're going to have guys from different parts of the country. You have guys different ages. Uh, so they're at different stages in their career. You could have a rookie who just came to the league who's 20, 19, 20 years old. Now you got a 30-year-old veteran who's got three kids and a wife, a dog, and a mortgage. Probably not a mortgage, not this. But uh, so... Those rookies are going to be closer than they are to the 30-year-old. So it's just understanding those dynamics. And if, you, if you're playing together, you have a certain understanding and a certain respect for one. Normally, the older guy gets more respect. He's been there longer. Uh, so the younger guys will actually look toward them to kind of set the tone with certain examples, certain different examples sometimes you get a superstar comes out who, who's special maybe a guy like lebron james uh maybe a guy like magic when he came out uh but uh for the most part the the veteran guys 
will pretty much lead the way. And so let's say the coach, and you've been a coach, let's say the coach thinks the team dynamic is somehow not working and that's why you're occasionally losing games. What would be some ways you can repair that dynamic? And again, this happens not, of course, not just in basketball, but of course, many different uh, skills. Well, then you're going to have to talk it out. You're going to have to find out what you're going to need uh, from each player to be successful. And it's really up to them to to meet your standard as a coach that you're you're putting forth. But the big thing is that you are one team, and that's what you really want to get them to understand. And it's really up to them. So I'm coaching the team, and I'm saying, hey, look, okay, guys, we're going to give you an offensive philosophy and a defensive philosophy of, of how we're going to play and how we're going to win. It's up to you to take that philosophy and make it yours. What do you mean by offensive philosophy? Like, what are two examples of offensive philosophies? Of how you're going to attack. So, like, let's say, for example, uh, you have certain weapons on your team. Maybe you have two guys who shoot the ball extraordinarily well. Uh, you want to get them the ball. Maybe your philosophy is attacking the basket. So you're, you're more of an attack first, jump shoot second type of team. What, so, what, what's a jump shoot? I'm sorry. A jump shot from the outside. Yeah. That's really funny. Just that's not funny for everybody. <laughs> right, right. But but it's like you're getting a basketball, so you're shooting a jump shot from the outside. So, um, so basically, it's it's more you're more of a driving to the basket, get close to the basket to shoot it, as you are just to catch it and shoot it from the outside. And how do the, how do coaches determine which offensive philosophy they should do? Is it statistically based? It's Is it understanding the team members and what their skills are? Yes, it's all of that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely statistics. It's definitely understanding your team's personality and understanding who you want to be. Like if I had, let's say I didn't know, let's say I'm just assigned to be a coach someplace and I didn't know the team yet. Are there statistics that say, uh, teams that try more jump shots are more successful than teams that try to get close to the net? You said if you were a coach? Yeah, and I was just looking at statistics. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's ridiculous. So we can laugh okay, about that for a few seconds. <laughs> let's say that it was. But the the point is, is that this is our philosophy. This is who we are. So yeah. it's part of your identity. So just like defensively, this is what we do. We don't allow people to drive the ball to the middle. We send them to the baseline. So as long as you have your philosophy, you understand it. So all the situations on the court, you're going to be able to adapt to it. But you have to motivate the players to adapt your philosophy. Like you said, the players are coming from their different age groups. They're coming from different parts of the country. They're coming from different demographic backgrounds, different ways they've been coached. What amount of coaching involves taking your vision and imparting that vision upon the team? Well, it starts with training camp. And look, and this is what you got to understand too. Once that season starts, you're going to be together with your teammates as much or more than you are with your family. So you're going to spend time together. You're going to get to know your teammates. At best, there's 15 of them. You'll know them very quickly. I, I already spend more time with Steve, the podcast producer, than my family. Well, so. yeah, yeah. Steve, Steve, uh, that happens. And you see he gets worried. That's why he's lost most of his hair. <laughs> it's a worrier. That's, that's why he gets such great guests. 
So, so you know, I think I think though there's what's interesting about you is is that also you have a very different background than many than the kind of the image of many basketball players. Like you come from a farm. There's a certain there's a certain great consistency in your life. How long have you been married to your wife? Uh, thirty eight years. Thirty eight years. Uh, you're currently now with the University of San Francisco helping with their special initiatives. You started at the University of San Francisco how many years ago? 40 years ago? 42 years ago? Yeah, 1976. You live near your father. Your father still lives near San Francisco, right? Sacramento. Yeah, so he's, he's, how often do you see him? I, I, see, I see him, well, I talk to him a lot. So um, at least a couple of times a month. Uh, you know, he is probably one of the more positive guys on the planet. Right, so positive upbringing, hard work, this extreme consistency. Like, I almost, we can almost do the entire podcast about how you stay in a marriage for, for 38 years. But uh, uh, how much of this consistency has been important to your strength in basketball? And when you see people who don't necessarily have that stability and consistency that you've had all along... How how do you react? How do you work with them? Well, I, I would say that I've been really lucky in in the extent that, and we we're just talking about this the other day because um, I, I've always had a strong belief. Not that we um, went to church every Sunday. We didn't. We usually work them, but I've always had this really strong belief that um, I'm. I'm Wherever I am, that's where I'm destined to be. So, so think about this. When I was coming out of high school, uh, I was really led to my college. I had two other choices, and they basically kind of canceled themselves out. Uh, so I ended up at USF, which was a great choice. Loved the school. Beautiful city, one of the greatest cities of the world. Great college. I got drafted by the Knicks. I had no choice. So great city here. I got traded the New York it was it was great. What a great launching point. So I played for the Knicks for nine years. Then after that I was traded to the Bulls. Uh I was there for six years. Very, very fortunate to win three championships, have one of the greatest or really two of the greatest coaches in the league, but Doug Collins and Phil Jackson. I mean, that's gotta be incredibly I mean, not lucky because you because you obviously earn your place in the world, but but there is an element of luck. I mean, Phil Jackson is arguably one of the greatest coaches in in basketball history, and you you not only worked for him as a player, but you were also a, a coach under him. Like, what what was what made him such a great coach versus other coaches? Well, this well that's what I'm saying. This was the thing is that after I left the Bulls, I went to Seattle. Uh, I came back and went to grad school. Uh, oh, I didn't you know, know that. Yeah. Oh, no notes. <laughs> what did you, you study in grad school? I got Maybe the, I ignored uh, that because I got thrown out of graduate school. <laughs> um, I got my uh, degree in uh, organizational development, human resources. So I was hanging around in Sacramento, got a phone call from the Bulls GM, Jerry Krause. Uh, initially, I told him, you know, I didn't want to step over anybody. He called me back like two days later said, come on down and coach. So I viewed that again as this is where I was supposed to be. So I went to Chicago, I was very fortunate, I got to coach for Phil. 
And being there with being Phil's assistant coach was was great. So Tex Winter was still there. I think Frank Hamlin was there. He was recently passed. Uh, Jim Clemens was there, another great coach. And you just really learn how to be a coach and the the detail that they had. And most importantly, everything they did was connected. And it was really interesting how they did that. And it was knowing coaches and knowing people, if you ask them a question, they could explain it simply. And I thought that was really amazing. What What's an example? Well, basic example is that why, why are we doing this defensively? So, um, okay, this is why we're doing this defensively. We're sending people baseline because we want them out of the lane because we feel that the lane is the most vulnerable spot on the floor. That's why offensively we look to attack the lane. So everything made sense. It was all tied in to the... So they, what would, we were doing offensively, what we were trying to achieve, we did not want that to happen defensively. Would they justify it with some kind of proof, or would you just have to blindly trust the coach? Well, it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense. If I'm telling you that attacking the middle is the weakest part of the defense, I'm certainly not going to allow the defense to attack the middle. So I'm going to try to keep them out. So it fit into what we were, what we were doing as a team, and it was just a lot of basic fundamental thoughts, fundamental skills. That dribble pass shoot we talked about earlier. We won't talk about the jump shot, but to be able to dribble, to be able to pass, to be able to shoot the ball. I would bet if you go out now and ask people for the next, do you guys work on your dribbling? And you're passing and you're shooting. You, they work on the shooting. But do you work on your dribbling and you're passing every day? They'll say no. Why? Why wouldn't a coach say, okay, you got to be a better dribbler than every other team? Because time. And also, they may, not, they may believe they already have those skills. But we felt that you need to work on those, your basic fundamental skills every day. So there's, So it seems like... There's fundamental skills, and then there are more nuanced skills like footwork and, I guess, very specific aspects of teamwork. What what would be an example of like sort of a nuanced skill that you would treat very seriously, like you specifically for your job as a center? Wow. You know, nuanced skills. Yeah, something that that (laughs) you'd have to work really hard on that maybe other centers— wouldn't even think of as something that they need to work hard on. Well, let me give an example. When and, uh, I, and I ask you something because you're you, one of the best you, centers of all time. Now, now you've heard of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yes. Right? So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar shot a hook, right? A hook. That's what he's known for, just so you know. So he And people called it a sky hook, which is still humorous to me because it's a hook. So I'm not sure how it became a sky hug. Well, only but. because you and him have <laughs> your heads actually in the sky and everyone else. It's a, you're, for you, it's just a hug. For everyone else, it's like an outer space hug. <laughs> so um, that's a basic skill that when I was growing up, 
everybody shot a huck, every single person. So uh, as I'm coaching in Phoenix, I do a Nike camp. I have the best 25 centers in the country, young centers, high school. So how many of those 25 high school kids do you think can shoot a hook? I would assume all of them because, and here's why I'll assume it, because they've all watched you and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and just like you would watch people and you would emulate your virtual mentors and you would practice what they did. They would say to each other, look what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did, let's try to do it. But you're saying, I'm assuming you're saying they didn't do that. One out of the 25. And so why do you think they didn't learn the skill of learning a skill? Why should they learn it? There's nobody to teach them. But they see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and you succeeding with it on YouTube. There's YouTube videos of you doing it. They have, they have no idea how to do it. It's not, it's not a skill anymore that's taught. Hmm. So, so for the things that we took for granted, that of course everybody's going to do this because it's, it's, like, it's a great skill. Uh, some of the greatest scores in our game is one of the easiest shots to get off. It's not taught. It's to your point earlier, like if you were to play guitar, understanding the field completely, like I, if if I were to, let's say, be at that level of basketball where I want to be better than all of my competitors, I would want to look at the history of the game, all the best players, see what skills they had that I needed to learn, and then try to learn them. I'm just trying to understand the thought process of the, like here's a field I don't know anything about, but I'm still trying to understand the thought process of how to achieve peak performance in that level. And that's the way I would think about it. Well, it's just it's just a new way of playing right now. It's like it's like the NBA has already always basketball has always evolved. Uh it was like we were laughing about the jump shot because years ago there was no jump shot. There was only set shots where people two feet on the floor and you shot the ball. So people did not jump up in the air. So it was somebody with some imagination that said, hey, wow, I could jump in the air and shoot this ball. So the league has just evolved from the guy's imagination, their talents, their skills. Do you think also maybe the league caters a little too much to entertainment? So what you have is uh, teams running back and forth dunking just to kind of get those you know, shot, you know, here's what happened on this game. And then you have the three seconds and obviously you're just going to show someone dunking. So you think a lot of players kind of cater to, I want to just be the best dunker. And if I didn't do that, I'm going to get on TV a lot and get a big salary. The league does like entertainment. So our league now, the NBA is really congruent to having three point shots, dunks at the basket, uh, it's kind of evolved into that. Not saying that this is how it's going to be, because it's going to eventually evolve into something else. But, uh, yeah, the league does like that. The league does want, um, you know, our teams to entertain. But uh, ultimately, the players will decide how they uh, how they play and also the coaches in what they're taught. So that was that was really interesting and very perceptive for somebody who doesn't watch basketball much. No, but I think about TV a lot. <laughs> so, um, you know, which, you know, it, it's interesting because, again, I look at your career and, you, you know, you're a, a pro player, you're one of the best players, then you're a coach. 
Now, would you say at coaching, you were able to develop the skills of coaching as well as you were able to develop the skills of a player? Well, most guys coach how they were coached. And I was fortunate to have really great coaches from really extraordinarily disciplined coaches to coaches who were uh, a little more loose. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a wide variety of coaches. And I think as a coach, once you decide to to be one, you're able to take all those skills and decide, hmm, how would I want to be coached? How would I want to be told and given information? And what's the best way to do that? So um, I think that's how most guys coach. And it's interesting because um, – like John Thompson, for example, was a great coach at uh, at Georgetown. As you know, I'll just say that. I, I, as you know. Actually, I do know that one. You know why? My my business partner of 18 years did play basketball for Georgetown. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, so you know John Thompson Sr. was a real hard-ass. He's a great guy, but he's a real hard-ass coach. And, you know, he could curse at the players. I, I think it was, was Sr. Really, that was his coach. So his son coached Georgetown as well, and he's the complete opposite of his dad. So it's really interesting, and it's it's almost that parallel of saying that, hmm, this is what I learned from my dad. This is how I want to, this is how I would have liked to have been coached. So I think most guys do that. They they see the examples, they they uh, gather information from the coaches that they have, and then they decide who they want to be. And do you think, I mean, you know, your coaching career did not take the same path as your playing career. You know, your playing career, you were, you were winning championships left and right. Your coaching's <laughs> been a little bit more, you know, you coached for a lot of different teams. You coached in Japan, you coached in Mexico. Now you're not coaching. Uh, you know, what do you think you could have done to maybe kind of increase your potential as a as a coach. I'm not saying you were a bad coach, by the way. You mean, <laughs> there's so many different factors at play. There's your team. There's there's the the teams you're playing with. There's the people on the teams. So it just must have been a different experience for you. Well, coach is the same as a player because you can lose confidence as a player. I played for the Knicks for nine years. We had no championships. So, but you still had a great team. Well, but but look at it this way: because I was a starter for a lot of years, and then by the end of my Nick career, I wasn't a starter. So you have a decision to make of who you are and who you believe you are. So, and it's the same for coaching because when I got done playing, uh, you know, we started started in Chicago and we won two championships. I was on that staff, and then I went to Jersey. So we're in the playoffs. Uh, oh, then I became a head coach for the for the Bulls. Then I got fired, and how'd that feel? I mean, obviously, it didn't feel good. Well, but. you know, I was really happy to have that opportunity, but but I think what happens is that um, you know when you're not successful, you can lose confidence. Now, for me, I've always had a strong belief that you know if I do what I believe is right. I'm still as good as I, I ever have been. So, I've so you have to develop that. a core set of values to get that confidence. Yeah, you do. You have to have a clear understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. And is it relevant? And is it important? 
And I certainly think that um, what I taught and what I still teach when asked, uh, nobody's got that information, especially now. So <clears throat> if you want to talk basketball, let's talk basketball and let's find out what you really know. Because I know I, what I know, few people know. So I'm still really confident. And it's not like it's cocky saying that, but it's just amazing to me when I watch and there's such glaring blunders going on, you wonder what's being taught. But, but then why, for instance, get fired as the coach of the Bulls? Like what was, what, where was the disconnect between what you knew and what you were able to convey to the players? Winning. And also, we had, I had a factor going to that also. My boss, the guy that hired me, got fired. Mm. So, so there's some politics. So, <laughs> so immediately after that, uh, I think uh, 13 games into the season, I got fired. So, uh, but I knew that going into that season that my boss is out of here, the chances of me surviving aren't, aren't going to be great. So, um, even though you were such not only probably a good coach, but you were kind of a, a historical figure in Chicago. Like like people probably came to the games because to some extent, Phil Cartwright was the head coach. Yeah, you know, but but for me, I wasn't going to uh, uh, hold that um, as and view it as a negative. Now, my wife wasn't too happy. She didn't have a lot to say about that. <laughs> so, but I didn't want to move forward with my life. And to me, it wasn't an ending. Oh, I got fired by the Bulls. It was like another opportunity was going to come along. And it did. Uh, I was at a camp in Oregon. I got a call from a coach in Jersey. He wanted me to come out and coach. So I went out to Jersey to coach for four years. After we were let go there or basically going to be fired, I got a call from uh, Steve Kerr, who's now the coach of the... Uh, Golden State Warriors, he he was the GM at Phoenix, and he wanted me to come out there. And again, it was more, that's where I was, I'm supposed to be. So I went out to Phoenix for four years. And, you know, uh, basketball's a, a, and sports in general, live sports in general are this changing landscape because I feel like the entire, and we talk, touched upon this a, a little while ago, I feel like the entire value of television now is basically, uh, broadcast television is based on live sports. Like there's no reason for me to ever turn on a TV unless I'm watching either local news or live sports. And and I think that's why the value of basketball teams have gone up so much in recent years. And you were kind of at the cusp of that. You were like in the middle between low salaries and then the astronomical salaries that basketball players have now. <laughs> and do you ever, I mean, this is kind of a stupid question, but because the answer is maybe is yes, maybe it's you didn't care, but... Do you ever feel like, oh, just five years later, it's been tripled, quadrupled the salaries? Nah, you know, I was, I was fortunate to be where I was. Of course, everybody wants, oh, yeah, if you were born later, look what you could have made. But what about the guys who, you know, played in the 60s and those guys and, you know, guys, incredible guys, Bill Russell, uh, who with the USF and Will Chamberlain, those guys never made a hundred grand a year. That's unbelievable. So uh, they're like, hey, look, we're better than all you guys combined. So, um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to be able to play, to be able to play in the league. The league is, is really special. 
so all of that stuff that comes that just comes from the play and and being in the league at the time and our salary salaries were fine at that time. Uh, so I don't have any any regret for that. You know, I'm I'm happy these guys can make the money they make now. It's really remarkable. Yeah. So you know, now that you're you're 60, you've been through the playing, you've been through the coaching. You're you're working mm-hmm. with um, University of of San Francisco on on many of their initiatives. Uh, do you ever like, like athleticism is one of those things where as you age, you know, your ability to do certain things goes down. So do you ever like, here, here's something where you were the best in the world at some point and now you're not just by virtue of aging out of it. Do you ever miss that feeling that of, 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 I wish I could feel that, that peak performance, that best in the world feeling again. And, and does it ever make you try to do other activities where, where you could potentially get that feeling again? Yeah, yeah, of course. I think that, <clears throat> you know, for every athlete, not only basketball, as a matter of fact, we had an event at school where uh, uh, Michael Johnson and uh, Jennifer Easy and Brandy Chasty and Christy Yamaguchi spoke about this, is that she was 20 years old. She's in the Olympics. She got a gold medal. And it's like... She's too old now. Okay, where do I go now? Is this it? Is this like going to the moon? Is this... It's all over? It's downhill from here? So you're always looking for that uh, next thing, that thing that's going to take you back to the moon again. And uh, I don't have to do it in sports. I'm not bounded by that thought that... It's got to be in sports. Maybe it could be somewhere else, somewhere else that's special, somewhere else, something else that nobody else has done before. Um, so that's what I'm really curious about. Um, I think you should write a book about mastery, about how to be the best in the world at something. <clears throat> well, there's a lot of really remarkable people out there. And also, but, but even inside of doing that, like I view my dad as somebody who's somebody who's really special, somebody who had a really clear vision of a guy who grew up in Texas. When he got, to, when he got out of high school, he got on a bus. Uh, he knew there was nothing for him in, in Texas. Went out to California, joined his uncle, worked on a farm. Uh just that right there is vision to be able to change your circumstance and just an incredible father. Now, he never made a ton of money, um, you know, even though he was able to provide us, all seven kids, with what we needed to be successful. To me, that dude, uh, I've got a lot of respect for him for, for getting through through that and having a vision to live tech live leave Texas, especially where he grew up. We visited there on a reunion, and believe me, you want to get out of there. So, Bill, it seems like you've led this remarkable life of consistency, stability. You worked hard at all of these skills. You also had good coaches and teammates to kind of take those skills even further than probably you ever thought could have been possible. Um, it's really like an example to to look up to, and I really appreciate that you came on this podcast like uh, like uh i'm sure the, the listeners have learned a lot i've learned a lot i'm always trying to figure out for whatever it is i love and what i'm interested in 
what is the next steps to getting better? And I think you described a lot of those those methodologies, but I think also really important is this emotional stability. Like you're very calm sitting here. There's nothing I can do to like throw you off your your game. <laughs> and uh, uh, well, you know, and I and I'll tell you this is that yeah, because Steve and I talk about this all the time that uh, I've been really very fortunate. I mean, outside of my mother passing, who was you know one of the greatest women maybe of all time. I don't have a horror story. I don't have a, you know, a dad that beat me. I don't have a, a drugged out brother who tried to knife me or uh, I didn't grow up like a Mari Stoudemire that, you know, half my family's in jail. Uh, I don't have that story. I have a story about uh, great people around me. Uh, was there doubt? Was there doubt, incredible doubt to to be able to go into the NBA, yeah. There was like more people telling me I couldn't make it than good. Do you have to, when you go on the court in the NBA, do you have to like kind of get a different persona? Do you have to hypnotize yourself right beforehand? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, there's fear. I think a lot of guys have fear. I've never had any of that because I was always more of a mindset that uh, I wasn't worried about anybody else. I, it was like more of a Jimmy Connors tennis. It was like, I'm coming at you. This is how I'm coming. But also you didn't have things like on your mind. Like you weren't worried about, you know, your wife or your girlfriends or this or that. Like you kind of kept, you kept your life simple. So you didn't have to kind of like put on a different persona on the court. You could be yourself. Well, my family... And that includes my six sisters and my friends. And my support was always really, really good. So, like I said, you know, I my biggest thing was knowing who I am and what I want to do. Uh, what do you did, mean by who I am? Well, who I am as as a person and as an athlete. Because look, I'm I'm tall, as you as you acknowledge. <laughs> But I'm not extraordinarily strong. I'm strong when I was playing. I was strong, but not extraordinarily. Uh, I could run, but I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the quickest. But what I could do is to be able to kind of know what I wanted to do and know what you wanted to do. What do you mean what I wanted to do? Well, as as an offensive player, so yeah. I'm so if I'm playing against you, I'm gonna watch you. So I'm gonna know your plays. I'm gonna know your tendencies. Just like if you're cream, you're going over your left shoulder. If you're Robert Parrish, you're going over your right shoulder. If you're Artis Gilmore, you're gonna bring the ball to the lane left, and then you're gonna try to up and under. So I'm gonna know you extraordinarily well. So. Uh, because I'm, I'm going to watch her. I'm going to study her. I'm going to make sure that I understand what your intent is. And I'm going to try to take it away. Now, does that work all the time? No. But I got a plan. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, you can analyze it, figure out what doesn't work, try something new next time. Do next time. Some guys are just special. Like when I played against Moses Malone, um, that dude's a beast. So Kim Olajuwon, he's a beast. So certain guys, they're just they're just extraordinarily talented. So you just, you know, do the best you can. Try to trick them a little bit. Try to get them off their game a little bit. 
But sometimes there's nothing you can do. Just give them your best effort. You know, I guess, you know, you know, I, I, I didn't ask this, but it's sort of the obvious question. What's it like working with Michael Jordan? <laughs> you know, Michael, this is, this is what people should appreciate about this guy is that uh, at the time that I spent with him uh, and all the things that he had going on, never late, always worked ex extraordinarily hard, always competed extraordinarily hard, so this guy, basketball, even though he had all the other stuff around him, you know, car commercials, uh, people, interviews, reporters, basketball, first. Absolute first for him. So, um, you know, to me, that's that says a lot about him. You know, I think um, I think that's incredibly important advice because we're always – pulled by different things because oh no I gotta make I gotta make the mortgage first or I gotta do this first or I gotta do that first I think kind of finding what drives everything else and always improving at that and putting that first is is critical to living not only success but living a good a good healthy life yeah you gotta know you gotta have your if you priorities. just focused on the car commercials you <laughs> might not have been as valuable a basketball exactly. player like car and, and underwear commercials where where would we be now <laughs> <laughs> we'd have no michael jordan <laughs> exactly but we'd have uh be wearing uh, nicer underwear i guess yeah, maybe <laughs> so <laughs> maybe i'd wash my underwear occasionally i don't know um well not to end on that exact note but uh <laughs> Bill, thank you so much. Bill Cartwright, super NBA player. Again, I don't know how to even list all your your titles. You've been how many how many like championships, NBA championships did your teams win? Well, with the Bulls, five. Five. Five championships. So um, you know, in and to me, those were all every everything that, you know, we've had, success we've had. Um Teams that have been successful started in college. My sophomore year, we were the number one team in the country. Uh, playing on my Nick teams, we were, a, you know, twice it happened. Playing here in New York, we're like one game away from going to, you know, like either the Easter Conference Finals. Uh, so we were always really close. And then luckily winning with the Bulls and playing one year in Seattle. You know, you're teammates are, are such an important factor in that because you, you're together with these guys all the time so when I'm with the Knicks I had great teammates with Louis Orr and Trent Tucker and Patrick Ewing and Kitty Walker and then later on Mark Jackson came and um, oh, oh so but, so but related to this one thing I was curious about when you first were traded from the Knicks to the Bulls you were traded for Charles Oakley so Oakley comes to the Knicks, you replace him. Charles Oakley, of course, was loved by Chicago. Did you have to deal with that at first? Like, who is this guy? He's replacing our guy. Yeah, I did. It, it was uh, uh, it was interesting going and and uh, uh, having to face that. Um, but as you'll appreciate, after playing nine years here in New York. And going through the, you know, having your whole face on the back of the post, there wasn't one thing that could happen to me in Chicago. 
that, that I wasn't going to be prepared for. Uh, Come on, that's like, that's candy. Uh, uh, but that little bit of controversy. So um, I just knew I just had to be myself. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. You know, the um, it wasn't until I got into a couple of altercations with uh, some players from the Pistons that the, that the fans really loved me. But it took me, I had to get into an altercation <laughs> they, they want the fans want to see fans, the live fans want blood so after you saw a little blood oh we love this guy yeah. what a great guy well well bill you are a great guy and again thank you so much for for coming on my podcast it's been really great i i learned a lot so i'm not going to play basketball but i learned a lot for other things i'm going to do like, we got to get you to some games i don't know how are you available to come to some nick games and yeah uh, i'll go yeah 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 yeah, and if you ever come, I'll tell you what, if you ever come to Chicago when I'm there, we're going to take you into a Bulls practice. All right, when are you going to Chicago? I go to Chicago once a month. All so, right, I'll go. Let's do it in December. I'll do it. Yeah, we got to do this. We're going to get Steve, you are you hearing practice. this? Steve, Steve's all on board. So Steve, Steve is, uh, we can't, we can't let him on the court though, because it's just, it's <laughs> Steve, just you're not going on the court, <laughs> but I am, I, I actually have some dexterity. I, yeah, I could, you got some skills. I got, well, I have no basketball skills. I, <laughs> I play tennis. I play ping pong. So we can do that too. I, I, I go dancing a lot. <laughs> so it's gotta be <laughs> something I can use. You dance? That's that's interesting. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Bill. Oh, uh, James, thank you. Very, very good. Next time on the James Altucher Show. The one thing I noticed is that actors usually bring in one of two things with them into a room. They usually either bring in pig pen which is this character who is preceded and followed by this cloud of dust. And actors sometimes bring that in by saying, um, my aunt died in Philadelphia last night, so I had to take the train down there and I never got a chance to look at your script. Hmm. You're out. Why do they do that? Fear, we're afraid. We're afraid of our own shadows. Sometimes we come in and we impose our problems into the room and that's Pigpen. And you're dead. That is so interesting because it happens in every situation in life, really. And then every once in a blue moon, people bring in Elvis Dust. And Elvis Dust is when actors come in and it's this strange combination of self-esteem meets homework, meets right for the part, meets the room. And when people bring in Elvis Dust, all we want to do is get it on us. If you like this episode and want to hear more from the James Altucher Show, then subscribe and be the first to listen to all the newest interviews.